I heard this voice in there, and he was bossing me around, telling me what to do on the guitar, and being really hard on me, and I didn't know who he was until I was... Years later, I saw this documentary they'd done on Tom Dow. Have you seen that? Yeah. And I, I was riding in a van back from a gig, you know, and they had put it on, and I went, God, it was Tom Dow. <laughs> he was giving me a hard time, yeah. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Today's episode of Recording Studio Rockstars is sponsored by Roswell Pro Audio, maker of handcrafted microphones in California. Inspired design and impeccable attention to detail will help you capture a gorgeous vintage sound without the vintage price tag. Check out their beautiful line of microphones at roswellproaudio.com. You may already know that using true analog gear is one of the best ways to create a great record. Yet increasingly, we live in a digital world, recording and mixing inside the computer. So what if you could have the best of both worlds? Tegeler Audio Manufacturer is bridging the analog-digital divide by creating high-end analog gear like the Schwerkraft Maschine compressor and the Raumzeitmaschine reverb whose knobs you can control remotely using a plug-in in your DAW. Or their many analog units like the Cream bus compressor with mastering EQ or the VeriTube recording channel that let you save your settings using a custom recall sheet plugin, offering a complete line of pro audio gear from compressors to EQs to reverbs and beyond. Now you can get a pro analog sound while benefiting from the power of digital. Let your DAW help you move your knobs so that your music can move you. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about Tegeler Audio Manufactor. Hey, Rockstars, it's your host, Lid Sean. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Mac Gaydon, a successful songwriter, producer, and guitar player. He's also considered a musician's musician for his intricate playing. He started playing guitar in Nashville as a teenager in the 1960s and quickly became a top session guitar player, playing on iconic records such as Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde. Mac was also known for his unique slide guitar sound through a wah-wah pedal made famous on J.J. Cale's record Crazy Mama. And years later, in 2013, he was finally inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame as one of the original Nashville Cats. As a songwriter... Mac wrote Everlasting Love, covered by many great artists, including Carl Carlton, Robert Knight, U2, and Gloria Estefan. It has the distinction of being one of only two songs to ever have hit status every decade for the past 40 years. As a top session player, Mac helped found two critically acclaimed supergroups in the 1970s, Barefoot Jerry and Area Code 615, both of which recorded with Wayne Moss at his famous home studio, Cinderella Sound in Madison, Tennessee, about 10 miles north of here. Mac has played on records with many great artists, including John Hyatt, Chris Christofferson, Leonard Cohen, Simon and Garfunkel, Loudon Wainwright, Rita Coolidge, and Robert Knight. He is an open book of Nashville music history. Please welcome Mac Gaydon to Recording Studio Rockstars. Mac, are you ready to rock? Oh, I am. Thanks, Liz. My pleasure. Thanks for that introduction. You're welcome. And, you know, 
as I do with all of my guests, I have an opportunity to do some research and really learn more about them. Um, and I've known you for a long time, but I really didn't know as much about you. And I'm looking forward to learning more just by having a conversation with you. I, you know, I, I didn't know that you, uh, I had forgotten that you were in area code 615 and barefoot Jerry and that, you know, you had this long history as a session guitar player. Uh So I love hearing all that stuff. Tell us a little bit more about how you got started out in all this, you know, give us in your own words, an introduction to your arrival in Nashville and, and getting into this world. I was born here. So I arrived when I was born. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I grew up in South Nashville off Franklin Road and uh, went to a private boys' school and high school down in Franklin BGA, Battleground Academy. And uh, they didn't allow music in the school, and I I was playing on the basketball team. I remember when I was a junior, we had a really good team and a really good chemistry. But because I was playing rock and roll, they set me on the bench for five games. And... uh, (laughs) We lost all five games, so I got back on the t- starting again, and I just continued. so were you really you literally got in trouble for oh, for doing rock and roll music. Oh yeah, they just didn't like it at all. Rock really? and roll in those days was like the, of the devil. Wow. Yeah, and you would uh, I would play at my my friends' houses that I grew up with. They would have parties and stuff, and the parents would meet me at the front door and said, "All you musicians go through the back door and eat with the help." That's the kind of vibe. It wow. Was, yeah. So, yeah. So That's anyway, so I got into playing music and started playing with some of the black uh, doo-wop groups in town. And I saw them on the street, and I'd go sit in with them on, on the street, you know. And, oh, nice. Uh, Busking. Yeah, you know, yeah. And so uh, that's how it really all started. And, and you'd take an acoustic guitar with you or yeah, something Yeah, like I would take an acoustic. What kind? Would you take a, uh, a dreadnought or an it was a, kind of thing? It was a sovereign, not a sovereign, but a, a what was it? Okay, harmony. A harmony, yeah. yeah. With a, with an arch top, that yeah, kind of thing, no, and just like banging out yeah, chords? Yeah, I think it was, I can't remember what it looked like. Uh, I haven't okay. seen seen that that particular guitar in a long time. But uh, anyway, so I would play, and they would say, yeah, you play pretty cool. So I would go sit in with these little uh, community center gigs with them for little dances and stuff. And I really got started that way, playing R&B. So anyway, so the... Transition over to country was later. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I know I don't want to jump ahead here, but um, the sort of the, the cultural crossover um, as a white guy playing guitar um, in the R&B scene and everything, it just reminds me. I went back and um, just rewatched uh, the Muscle Shoals documentary, yeah. sort of preparing for this interview too. So, rock stars. The timing of this interview, of course, is um, immediately on the passing of Rick Hall. Yeah, and I did sessions with him. Yeah, yeah. and I know you, we want to talk about that too. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess yeah. where I'm going with this too is to ask you about that. You know, crossing over between white and black culture at that time uh-huh. and playing music. I mean, did you, uh, you know, what was your background with your family that you wanted to be a bit of a rebel and or play rock and roll and, you know, cross the lines? My dad was a doctor and my mother was a socialite. <laughs> a socialite. <laughs> she would go to, you know, fundraisers and junior league and all that kind of stuff and raise money for, you know, causes. But uh, we had six kids in my family, so my dad, even though he was a doctor, we weren't wealthy, you know. So, 
you know. When oh, she you was, were not wealthy because of six was a kids. lot of mouths to feed. Oh, that's right. So everybody had, you know, to like play it down a little bit, even though we had to run around with friends who were wealthy. But uh, anyway, so music was looked upon as being of the devil back then, as I said before. Yeah. And so my grandmother, who sang in church, finally one day, she said, you leave this boy alone, let him do what he's going to do. You know? So on her piano, I wrote this melody when I was five years old, which turned out to be the counter melody to Everlasting Love. Can you sing that melody for us, The melody goes in the chorus. Yeah. Uh, and behind the, the uh, regular melody was, uh, open up your eyes, then you realize, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so that's pretty amazing. So you did that at five, and it just stuck with you? You just kind of had that in your back pocket yeah, for a I long threw, time? Yeah, I threw it on the session. I just threw it in. Well, tell us, let's jump right into that story. So tell us about the session and about, um, you know, <clears throat> taking a song that you had started when you were five years old, and how did you turn that into one of the biggest hit songs? Well, Buzz Case and I wrote that, wrote nine or ten songs for Robert Knight's first album, and that was really a B-side, or what they would call a throwaway tune or something in the can or something like that. And so the session was over. It was on a Friday night, and we had all these music musicians there, and uh, Brent Mayer was his first session as an engineer. Went on to engineer the the Judds and produce them. But anyway, so uh, his first session was was Everlasting Love, and it was a big big hit. But we had like uh, uh, thirty minutes left on the session. Not everybody wanted to go home, and everybody will tell you, don't ever book a session on Friday night, right? Because <laughs> you'll get the worst performance by the musicians possible. Well, in those days, you know. Did people go home or were they just headed to gigs Well, I anyway? just begged them to stay and they stayed and we, 30 minutes on the song and everybody knew it was special. We didn't know it was a hit. You never know if it's going to hit. That's, yeah. That's up to the people. But we uh, played it back and everybody went, you know, there's something to it. And so by the time we finished doing overdubs and the musicians had already left, uh, I overdubbed a Farfisa organ playing that part I just hummed in the background, and Buzz Kaysen and, and his, his singer, Carol Montgomery, sang da-da-da-da. They sang, sang it also, along with the strings. But anyway, Kenny Buttry played drums on that. See, it was Pig Robbins played piano, mm -hmm. Nora Putnam played bass, and then we had a horn section. That's I wild. can't remember who all was on that, but we yeah. just ran through it quickly. And Where were you guys recording this? It... Uh, Phillips studio back then was Monument had bought the studio, so it was Monument legally. But it's Phillips studio at that point. It's down across from uh, uh, the War Memorial building. There's a big tall building down there now. Okay. Yeah. All right. But it was over in there. It was a big. It was a so house. it wasn't on Music Row necessarily. No, it wasn't. It was a house kind of thing. It was two, three uh, or four. Was it a home studio? Kind of was. Yeah. Sure, but a big one. Yeah. yeah. It's where Orbison cut all of his stuff and Dolly Parton, all wow. those people, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, did I read something about you? Um, am, I, am I remembering that right? Or was it? I was I, When I was reading up on you, it was I was reading also comments about Wayne and you and, yeah. and stuff like that. And maybe it was Wayne that had played the Pretty Woman guitar lick or something like yeah, that. Yeah, he and or, two or three other guys played okay. the same <laughs> lick. <laughs> okay, right. Same lick. <laughs> On, on the same session. That's the same same studio. Yeah. 
Um, well, very cool. So, uh, you know, one of the things I like to ask our guests, Mac, at the start of the interview is to share an inspirational quote, too. Do you have anything you'd like to share with us? Yeah, I have got Let's see, what if, where is my... I always like to center in uh, when I'm in the studio and repeat to myself, you're younger than this moment and older than forever. Okay. Came up with that in lyric one time. So I always think about it. You're younger than this moment and older than forever. Right. All right, so... What does that what does that mean to you? Boundless. Focus focus on your body. Yeah. Be in your body. Yeah. You know, I remember when you and I worked together, yeah. it's just coming back to me now, but you had talked about how important um physical health health was to you uh-huh. and practicing yoga and, yeah. and I think you had a story you shared once about the doctor opening you up for some procedure uh-huh. and saying that your insides looked like you're about 25 years old. Yeah, that's true. I was on the operating table at Vanderbilt, and they were repairing a hernia. And uh, they opened me up, and they had all these uh, interns in there watching the procedure. There was about eight of them. They were all, and uh, they gave me an epidural, which is from the waist down, dead from the waist down. Right, so you're still awake. I'm still awake, wide awake. That doesn't sound like much And fun. I told them, I said, uh, you know, they said, well, how come your organs are so young and you're 47 years old or something like that? I said, because uh, I meditate and da-da-da-da-da, yoga and stuff yeah. like that. They all laughed like, oh, come on. Yeah. I always got the impression when I moved to Nashville and met a bunch of other um, older musicians that music and a life in music can um, kind of keep you young. Oh, no, no doubt. I mean, I know there are elements to a lifestyle in music that might help you age, but I mean, um, you know, even watching Keith Richards in the Muscle Shoals documentary, I mean, I, I you know, uh, all resp- due respect to Keith, I think he's lived a lifestyle that may have pushed the boundaries, and yet he still kind of seems like a, oh, a yeah. youthful soul at this point. You know? Oh, there's no doubt about it. It's like a spiritual technique music is. Yeah. I mean, I can go like a, a week without playing and I feel a tremendous amount of stress in my body and in my head and everything else. And as soon as I pick up the guitar, start playing, it's over. It's go, it goes away, you know. Yeah. I think playing music for me is as important as anything. Yeah. Anything what, I do. What is your routine like? Um, well, if you don't mind my asking, Mac, how old are you now? And what is your routine with music like these days? I'm 77. And uh, my routine is basically I get up in the morning and I do what they call asanas, which are yoga postures. And uh, I do that for 30 minutes and then I meditate for an hour. I do the CDs, which is an advanced t- uh, TM uh, technique, and uh, which is, focuses on the different natural laws of nature. Mm-hmm. Levitation and stuff like that. Yeah, really. Have yeah. you ever levitated? Oh yeah, I've I've levitated with a, a room full of about five thousand people before. Really, it's the <laughs> damnedest thing you've ever seen. Now, now that's not you jumping in the air on stage with a guitar in your hand. Well, it does look like jump, it does look like jumping. It does. The because there's so much stress in the atmosphere out here on the planet, uh, we can't float like we right. should. We should be should be able to float by now, but there's just too much stress. So we bounce like frogs. In the sitting in the lotus position, yeah, legs crossed. If you see it, you go like, well, "Come on," you know. But if you get get on the foam and try to do it yourself, it's impossible. Interesting. So, so it's like uh, to see it is 
But to do it is another thing. You know? Well, I have to say I'm uh, um, an advocate of impossible things. Otherwise, yeah. I probably wouldn't have chosen to do a career in life and music myself anyway yeah. <laughs> to begin with. But yeah. uh, I like to keep an open mind, and I'm always interested in new things. I've learned that there's a lot more that I don't know than there yeah. is that I know. Yeah. You know? Well, what happens is when the in the, in the mind, the brain is, uh, the neurons in the brain, all when you lift off, from the from the phone, all the neurons in the brain are firing simultaneously. They've done tests, and these people that are hooked up to electrodes, their whole brain is firing at the same time. All the neurons. So, uh, well, you, that's fascinating. Um, yeah. Have you found a correlation between what goes on with that and what goes on in music? Uh, yes, there have been times. When I walked up on stage and played, and it felt like two minutes went by, and it was like an hour and a half. So when that happens, and it does happen, the athletes talk about it too. Mm -hmm. uh, what, do they, uh, what do they call it? Uh, uh, Michael Jordan called it in the Being zone. in the zone or in something? In the zone, yeah. Uh, time goes by, and it becomes less linear. Yeah. Yeah. And time becomes timeless. Yeah. I guess I have a sense of that when I've trained for a marathon before. And, yeah. You know, spending hours running should feel a lot more insane than it does if I was in the zone with it. Yeah. You know? Although it's hard for me to equate my experience with Michael Jordan's. <laughs> yeah. And the endorph endorphins kick in, too. Yeah. 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 Well, um, all right. So let's see. How about, um, you know, I don't know if you've got one in mind, but another thing I like to ask about, uh, you know, especially speaking to somebody with – so much experience and so many successes is if you maybe wouldn't mind sharing a story of a real failure for you in music or in the studio that kind of brings it all down to earth and reminds us that um, oh, yeah. we might all experience the same things on that journey. Yeah, I haven't written it down, but it just dawned on me. I, uh, something that happened to me. I went to other, when I was reading your notes, I went like, wait a minute, I, don't, I can't think of anything. Then I just thought of something really it was traumatic in my career, and I, I, I didn't take it. Seriously at the time, but I didn't realize to a few years later how serious it was for my career. I had a record out as a solo artist after I left Barefoot Jerry. I had a song called Morning Glory. Yeah. Which is a slide guitar kind of thing and a kind of a interesting lyric. And uh, it was picked in all the trades as, as being a hit, you know. And uh, at, at that time, there was three different trades that people went by. Was picked in all three, and uh, so what happened was a ABC out in California saw it was from Nashville, so they put it in the country promo uh, stack. They sent all the promo records on that record out to country stations, and so it it never got off the ground, and uh, they made a huge mistake. So they flew me out to L.A. to talk about the second album, and and uh, they just said. You know, do some music that we can play for our friends at the country club, you know. And I just thought, oh, I'm gonna give, I'm gonna give them the most rebellious album I can, and, <laughs> and I and I did, and they had to put it out. Yeah. So I was so mad because of what they had done to uh, to Morning Glory, and uh, Morning Glory did stir up some some noise in Europe and maybe uh, in San Francisco and maybe New York. What in, What year was this? Uh, was that two? Or decade. 73, 74, 73, okay. something like that. And what was the, how would you describe Morning Glory? I mean, well, they described it as country. 
And that was incorrect, right? Yeah, oh, it was kind of R&B, white soul, you know, and with a slide guitar lead all over it. And it was chosen by a contest they had at BBC. They had a contest of all the Dwayne Allman, Rock Cooter, and all these different slide players. And they had people call in and vote on it won number one in the vote. Nice. So that was a big feather in my head. So Dwayne Allman, Leonard Skinner, those guys all recorded down in Muscle Shoals. You recorded in Muscle Shoals. You're from the South. Do you consider yourself to be a real part of the kind of Southern rock genre? I I think I was in the middle of it, yes. Yeah. Uh, I was trying to. I mean, I knew the Almond Brothers when they were the Almond Joys, and they were playing downtown. Really? They were playing downtown at, I can't remember the name of that club. But I knew them way back then. And Dwayne and I used to play sessions together, and we would swap licks. He played in an E tuning, and he opened tuning, and I played in a G. We would just sit and swap licks, and they wouldn't let us play slide on the sessions. Why is that? Steel players didn't like it. Right. It pissed them off. So let's talk about your slide style. I mean, um, you are known for playing slide through a wah-wah guitar, and that's really featured on JJKL, Crazy Mama. Yeah. Um, Tell us a little bit about that story. Maybe even start by introducing people to who is JJKL. JJKL, who who wrote Cocaine, uh, After Midnight, Crazy Mama, maybe a few other songs that were hits. It was a great friend uh, of Clapton's. And he's from Tulsa, part of the Tulsa scene, and uh, became very famous with those with his own guitar style, which kind of is like a lilting kind of jazz blues style, and uh, kind of slowed down, you know, a little bit at a time. He wasn't a real fast player. Yeah, he could, but he wouldn't, you know. On that record, you guys were playing with a lot of drum machines too, right? And so he 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 called me one day. He was doing some demos. This is when he first moved to town. No one even knew who he was. And he got me over to the studio, and he said, I, I walked in, and I heard this thing. It sounded like a bass drum and a snare hitting at the same time. I couldn't tell which was which. And he said, uh, uh, this is a, a drum machine. I think I'm one of the first ones around here that, that has one. So <laughs> he, he, he said, would you like to play on this Jimmy Reed kind of tune? Jimmy Reed is kind of dun 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 that kind of feel. Anyway, so he calls me a few months later, and I go out to Bradley's barn. And I'm sick. I have a fever of 103. And I'm, I told him, I said, I'm good for one one take. Nice. And they said, okay. They turned the, turned the machine on. And I said, okay, I could do one more. They said, we got it. I got it on the first take. That's great. Yeah. And this is recording a tape back in the day. Yeah. Tell us about Bradley's barn. Bradley's barn was just a big barn converted it, into Owen a studio. Owen Bradley? Yeah. Is that right? Owen Bradley. And where was that? Uh, that was out of, was it, oh, Oh, Hickory Lake, or per, up per, north Percy, of Nashville, or something. Yeah, like or that. Percy Priest Lake. Um, Percy Priest out, out uh, east. I'm not sure which yeah. one. Like it was, yeah. I think it was out in Hendersonville, maybe. Okay, all right. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I can't remember. Remember now. It's not there anymore. You know? Yeah. And, um, but anyway, it was what a history that had. Patsy Cline and Brenda Lee and all those people. Yeah. Um, let's back up a little bit. Tell us a little bit more about being a session player. In Nashville, I mean, you ha- you were a teenager playing guitar. How? S- at what age did you begin to play sessions as a teenager? I started playing sessions about 
19, 18, 19 years old, yeah. Okay. And what I, what I did was uh, there was a studio downtown called Globe Studio. It was run by this guy who would advertise in different music ma magazines all over the United States that he would demo your song for X amount of dollars. You just send in whatever style you wanted the song to be Nashville's been like that for a long oh, time. Oh, yeah, it, it has, yeah. So anyway, it, it, and we got paid on how many songs we did a day. Sometimes we do 30, sometimes 20. And we got like $10, $15 per song. So, and, uh, so anyway, the, uh, I, I started playing those set. We did all kinds, of, all kinds of music, everything you can imagine. Jazz, you know, folk, country, R&B, and whatever else fell in between the lines. And you're working there. You're working quickly on the song. Oh, yeah. and we had endings one through five and beginnings, intros one through five. So we'd, and there we memorized the, end, the endings and the beginnings. Really? So yeah. somebody just calls it, let's do a three? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We'd speed everything up. It's sped, sped it up that way. So anyway, we'd, we uh, I would play bass sometimes. Yeah. And then guitar a lot. And, and so that's how I really got started. Now, were you guys writing charts? Was this part yeah, of the, yes, we were. the process as but well? We were writing number, I mean, uh, new, uh, letter charts. Right, you wouldn't use numbers, numbers. numbers you'd write the letter of the chord. It wasn't here yet. Yeah, it wasn't there yet. Uh, when did the number system arrive? Charlie McCoy brought it here. Who who did? Charlie McCoy. Oh, yeah, he was playing harmonica with you in um, yeah. Area Code 615. Yeah, he right? was, yeah. And Charlie brought it here. Just a second, I'm going to drink. All right. Um, yeah, so I Char discovered Area Code 615 right about when I built this studio, actually. Yeah. I had uh, been watching a movie called Heartworn Highways. Uh-huh. Um, and it was they took us through Nashville in this this documentary and took took us to um oh I forgot which studio it was but they went in they showed uh, footage from Cinderella and that was the first I ever heard of Barefoot Jerry and, and yeah. Area Code Six One Five and we were flipping out we were yeah. like what is that that's cool you know and, yeah. and then I found Wayne later and there's um. What is the one song off there? Is it Fox Chase? Or yeah, Fox Chase. Fox Chase. It was in a movie, right? And it's got this breakdown in there, which is the greatest hip-hop drum breakdown I've ever heard. You know? Yeah, oh, yeah. Right in the middle is like a little breakdown spot. But yeah. anyway, so I got really excited about it before I even knew that, you know, you were— and I'd already worked with you at that point. Yeah, oh, too. yeah. I just never talked about it much because it's sad to, sad to be a part of such a great group and it fall apart because everybody was making too much money in the studio. And they didn't want to, yeah, so there was no it. reason to keep yeah. working on a labor of love yeah. at that point. That's right. We were out in Fillmore West with uh, Garcia and the Grateful Dead on the front row. Yeah. Playing for them. And the guys in the group didn't know who they were. I was the only one that kind of knew who they were. Really? But uh, so they all did the Fillmore thing and came home and said, I don't want to do that anymore. Really? Uh, and wow. so we started Barefoot Jerry. The, and that's how Barefoot Jerry yeah, started. Yeah, that's how okay, Barefoot cool. Jerry started, yeah. So there's another thing that I noticed when I was going and listening to Area Code 615 again, um, and somebody else even described it as like a, a, a meeting of country and, and southern rock. You know, this, yeah. this, you guys were kind of bridging between the two. Yeah. You know, um, high-octane uh, bluegrass music, yeah. in a way, electrified but it also reminded me a bit of the Dixie Dregs. And that yeah, well, they got thing, their yeah. influence from Barefoot Jerry. Yeah. I mean, from 615. They told me that. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, keyboard player, what's his name? I can't think of his name. From the Dixie Dregs. You know, he said, oh, we drew from the And also, uh, 
the, the bluegrass, newgrass revival. Yeah. Did the same thing. Interesting. Yeah. Well, very cool. Um, all right. So let's see. We'll, we'll back up. Your, your playing sessions, you guys are doing um, a lot of songs a day. Um, you're, you're, the Nashville number charts was brought here by Charlie McCoy. That's yeah. cool. That's the first I'd heard of that. Yeah, too. He's, he's the first one I knew about. The, uh, he, I think he said he did, but he, someone said that maybe Bill Purcell did too. Okay. You know who Bill Purcell was? No, no. Tell us about Bill Purcell. Keyboard, he's a keyboard player and a ranger. He, so he and, between he and Charlie and they were good friends, uh, the number system flourished here, it took off. Yeah. And then, um, Buddy Spiker, yeah, I remember right, the fiddle. violinist, fiddle player. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, so he had a fiddle shop here in East Nashville where I used to take my fiddle down and go do old, time, learn old time songs. Oh, really? And I could hear him. I think he divided the house up by just hanging a curtain between the shop and where he, the back of the house where he was living or something. Yeah. And I could hear him working up bizarre stuff in the back room, like really genius, you know, harmony parts and things like oh, that. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, but, you know, he does some, on the videos, I, I put together a playlist on YouTube of videos of your work and Barefoot Jerry and, and uh, Area Code 615. So Rockstars, you can find that if you just go into the show notes and, and uh, click the link, you can go listen to some of this music. But you'll see some amazing uh, live performances of you guys up on stage doing just cool stuff, you know, fast fast playing and, yeah. and real intricate, yeah. fun parts. Yeah. So you took some of the better session musicians and decided to put area coast 615 together. How did that come, come I together? I think Kenny Buttry and, uh, Elliot Mazur, he's a producer. Uh, he produced, uh, Neil Young and a few others. And, uh, and Linda Ronstadt, we were all doing the Linda Ronstadt album. I think he and Kenny came up with the idea. Let's throw these guys together. And was that, um, Silk Purse? Yeah. Up with Wayne at, yeah. at Cinderella? Yeah. It's yeah. a great sounding record too. Yeah, and we introduced, uh, uh, Linda to uh, Smokey Robinson. Okay. Was, was between takes, we were going, ooh, baby, baby. She said, Who's, who did that song? And we told her, and she, she cut it and had a huge hit. That's great, man. And, she, and then we did a Heat Wave, and she cut that. And then, uh, I don't know, uh, Tears of a Clown or something, but she did several. Of the, really? The, Tears of a Clown? Wow. Just from that one session. She listened to what we were doing and gleaned it, you know. That's great. Yeah. What a cool story. Um. Tell us a little bit about Cinderella Sound. Talk, talk about that studio up there. What do you? What was it like then? What's it like now? How would you describe it? Uh, it's kind of like playing in your garage because that's what it is. Yeah, and this is a garage. This, this is was a garage. Yeah, <laughs> they make the best. The only thing I park now is you know uh, hopefully a good mix. They make the best studios. They you know it, it really, really does. Do. Yeah, I've played in a lot of garages. Uh, anyway, it's like. Uh, he had shelves all around the, with all his guitars. You've seen that. You've been in I the I think show? so. Yeah, yeah, it's been a while. I've only yeah. been there maybe once or twice yeah. years ago. It's fun. You know, we used to have one of the, the singing booths in the bathroom, you know. I'm trying to get Wayne to come join us on the podcast, too, so I may need your help for that, Mac. Oh, yeah, I'll tell him. All right. I'll tell, I'll tell, tell, tell him what's up. I'll tell him. <laughs> I th I'm getting ready to see him maybe in a few days. But uh, it's just like uh, the first studio there was a garage that i ever played in you know that was real laid back no pretension we were all in the union back in those days so everything everything had to be by union rules and i think when we were out in uh, uh cinderella that we were off the chart off the clock okay cinderella was one of well i guess nashville was 
a lot of the studios were home studios initially, wouldn't it? Yeah. Wouldn't all of Music Row just home studios? Uh, a lot. Started? There were a lot. Yeah, yeah, there were a lot. But a lot of times you couldn't get off the clock if you if you had a a musician in the group that was like real strict. It was hard, you know. Yeah, yeah. What do you mean, get off the clock as far as like uh, you ending could play your session into the early? night? You know, just play instead of three hour session. It was an all day session, an all night session. Yeah. Which was a lot more fun. Oh uh, yeah, oh yeah. It's kind of like what they were doing in Muscle Shoals. Yeah. 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 Well, so why don't you take us to Muscle Shoals? Oh, actually, before we go, yeah, um, I wanted to ask you if you're familiar with this. So one of the things that's really remarkable about Cinderella is they have a Flickinger mixing console there. Oh yeah. Which is this amazing sounding board. And yeah, it is. It has a. Um, I've used another one. I've I've used <clears throat> Sly Stone's old Flickinger, which is at a. Uh, Key Club recording, Bill Skibby's studio in Benton uh -huh. Harbor, Michigan. Uh -huh. And this particular console <clears throat> has this crunchy rock and roll quality to it that makes yeah, it the does. drums sound super cool. And, you know, a lot of those older recordings all seem to have that. I, I almost feel like that got lost as technology tried to get smarter um, and records got cleaner sounding and things yeah. like that. But there was something really cool to like Muscle Shoals recordings to Cinderella's recordings where you have this power because of the, almost like the limitations of the equipment yeah. cause you to push up against it. You know, well, I have a 46-minute jam that we formed Barefoot Jerry out of after that jam. It's nonstop. And it's just Wayne, Kenny, John Harris and I playing. Yeah. And it's just, you know, you have, you have to like uh, have a really good... Uh, Sense of humor or get stoned to listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> is it somewhere that we can find it or is it I in can your give personal you collection? I give you a copy, but you have to guard it with your life because then right. it's never so been This released. one's not going up on YouTube or anything no, like that? No, it's not right. been released. All right, all right. It's in the can and we're talking about how we're going to get it out. Because well, we the minute we put it out, it's, it's over. You know, somebody's going to, yeah. four to six minutes, it's going to copy the whole thing and they'll be like that crap. Out of Go ahead. Well, so tell us about going down to Muscle Shoals. I went down, they, they needed a guitar player. The, the guitar player that was playing down there, I can't remember his name, he was playing with uh, with uh, Norbert Putnam and David Briggs and Jerry Kerrigan, he was, and he was the guitar player. He had a drinking problem, and he was sick and having a hard time, so he had to go in the hospital or something. They called me and asked me to come down and play some sessions, and I went down there and met Rick, and and, uh, and I showed him this technique that I came up with, Later, ZZ Top made it, went to the bank with it, where you pick with your finger and your fingers in the pick all at the same time. You get a chime when you play the note. Ding, you heard that? I think so. Yeah. yeah. You mean, oh, where you get like the high overtone yeah, too? Yeah. It's was like a pinched sound. I was but... the first one I ever saw do it. Really? That yeah, was big and, in the 80s in hair metal bands, right? Rick, Rick said, I've never seen anybody do that. And I said, well, I haven't either. And anyway, so years later, uh, uh, ZZ Top was doing it, so. But I'm not going to say I'm the only one that ever did it, but yeah. I'm the only one I ever saw did it. Yeah, well, you know, in, in anyway. all of our worlds, where we we notice when it's the first time we see something, whether yeah. we do it or somebody else. So I meant to go see Rick before he died. I didn't know he was going to die, but I meant to see, get him to say I was the first one he saw do that. <laughs> Too bad you didn't get Rick to give you that testimonial yeah, before he's... Yeah, but, but anyway, the, the thing I learned is they, they did, worked on one song, for 24 hours, for, no, 15 hours. And my fingers were bleeding. Down at Muscle Shoals, yeah. you guys spent that much time on one song? Yeah, one song. And Rick would go away and uh, 
go play pool, and he would have the engineer call him when the band started sounding good. But we did one song, and I think it took 12 to, 12 to 15 hours somewhere. Yeah. All because you're not uh, playing the whole time. You're, yeah. You know, talking some. But anyway, I went back to, came back to Nashville, and I said, you guys got it wrong. And they said, what do you mean? Y'all are doing three hour, four songs in a three-hour session, and you're rushing through it, and you're not putting your soul into it. And I said, in Muscle Shows, they've got so many songs on the charts, and look, and look at us, you know. Right, and they're— the way they were approaching it was to make each song special until it was a hit, right? That oh, yeah. was sort of Rick's MO. Just to really milk it, you know. Yeah, he talked about that in the Muscle Shoals documentary. He talked about that when you get a chance, when you get a shot, you get one shot. Yeah. And so that very first shot, you know, of recording a song and submitting it, it better be a hit. Because if it's not a hit, you're done. That's right. sort of his attitude towards it. Try right, yeah. Um, well, that's interesting. You know, I guess there was a big difference for you between recording a whole bunch of songs each day when people just sort of hired you for those demos. And maybe it's no surprise that they didn't become the hits, but um, something that you guys really poured your heart and soul into did become a hit. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And uh, the, the uh, th thing that I noticed is when I'd go from one session to the other, I was starting to copy, the, starting to play the same lick on the last session I played on, and the next session I went, come on, you know. It's only because you're running out of ideas, and you, they don't give you time to come up with the ideas because you're rushing through it. Yeah. So well, you I, only what well, you had five intros and five outros. Yeah. Well, that was before all this stuff. Yeah. That was way back in the you know, uh, we didn't have that later on. Over on Sixteenth Avenue, they didn't do that. They they were more original. But the thing is, is I just got people to slow down a little bit, and then it got to where I couldn't tolerate the the tension on, on the session scene over and on, and I started Barefoot Jerry. And that and that was to just get out of here, you know. Yeah, yeah. So barefoot Jerry was a switch for you from session, you know, um, high tension session guitar playing uh -huh. to I'm going to do my own thing. Yeah, I'm going to smoke some weed. And, All right, yeah. and and tell us about the uh, the kind of story arc of barefoot Jerry. You know, how how did that go career wise and all that? The barefoot Jerry thing was. Uh, Kenny didn't want to do sessions. I mean, didn't want to play live gigs either because he was he was making two hundred two hundred fifty thousand a year. You know, wow. So doing back work. back then was like five hundred thousand a year. You know, yeah, really. But uh, so he just couldn't do it. So that's why I quit the group and went out on my own. So Barefoot Jerry for me lasted one album, and then I went on my own because Kenny was no longer there. And you weren't tempted to stick it out with the um, two hundred fifty thousand. Session playing gigs because it was just the, the lifestyle and the stress was just not worth it. I wasn't doing that. I wasn't making that much. You just weren't making that much. I was okay, making maybe enough. a third of that. <laughs> you know, and uh, and Kenny was just playing so many sessions. You know, uh, but but uh, I was doing as much work as I could take in. You know, yeah. it's a little harder to come up with ideas on a guitar than it is drums because the drums are pretty much you know. They are what they are. And right. Guitar. If you got a good pocket, you're yeah. you're in good yeah. shape. Yeah. Well, interesting. All right. Well, so let me ask you some other questions about some of the records you were on. Um, you tell us the story of working with Bob Dylan on Blonde on Blonde. Uh played on four or five tunes. They only have record of me playing on one. <laughs> and we're working on it now. The union's going through old records right now, trying to give me some legitimate uh idea of which other songs I played on. 
They they have the fact that strictly Sweet Marie or whatever. Yeah, I'm definitely on that one. They have record of that. Yeah. But uh, the other, I, I understand it. Sometimes it's just hard to remember what you did in the studio. I, I have trouble remembering what I did on different things. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, what they did back then, I got left off three or four albums. But that happens all the time. Yeah. Some s- secretary just let it fall through the cracks. Right. Yeah. I have to admit, I'm going to confess this publicly right now and apologize once again to my very good friend James Haggerty Hags here in Nashville. Yeah. As a producer, I overlooked one credit on a record where I had a number of different musicians playing and he had played a great bass part on one of the songs for Roscoe Gordon for a record I produced. And I just didn't see it when we were proofing the credits. I just didn't notice that I had accidentally left them off. So that happens. Hags, public apology to you right now, right here. Anybody, you're welcome to send me um, hate email to uh, put me in my place, but I screwed up myself too. Yeah. And I played on the, uh, s- several of us played on Bridge Over Troubled Waters. Yeah, tell album. us about that session. Was that down at uh, Muscle Shoals? No, that was done at Studio uh, A in Columbia here. Okay, all right. And um, the big one that was yeah, that became Havelina. Oh no, that's that's Studio A. The big one is Havelina, and then Ben's Place. The concert hut was B. That was B. Okay. Yeah, concert hut was B, and A was the other studio. Curb, I think, has their. Simon. Okay, I might be mixing up yeah. my studios. Then. But anyway, uh, we were playing on uh, that that whole album with I Am A Rock and all those songs. And, and uh, Paul Simon just started screaming at uh, Garfunkel all of a sudden and just lost it there for a few days and then just left town. Really? Yeah, and so we didn't get credit. Even oh, though we no. played on the You album. were on the record, but because they had an internal fight. He, he, had a, he had a bad memory of Nashville, so it was anti-Semitic and... Uh, we didn't even know that was going on. It just happened, yeah. Really? Just that we went like, what is going on, you know? You didn't know that they had had the fight and walked off, or you didn't know that there was sort of an anti-Semitic thing going on? There wasn't, but they, that's he what... Just sat, he picked yeah, up on he, it. He was, he, he was being paranoid for some reason, you know. We didn't know any of that was going on, and all hmm. of a sudden it said, he's going back to New York to finish the album, yeah. Hmm. So Kenny... Yeah, I'm real pissed off because he says he played drums on Bridge Over Troubled Waters and somebody else got credit for it. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, at least there was some credit. You know, these days yeah. we just kind of give up on that for the most part, it seems like. Oh, yeah. But there's new stuff coming that I think is really fascinating. So I won't go off on too much of a tangent. Yeah. But there are new technologies that are arriving right now called blockchain and hashing algorithms and these companies that are um, trying to create digital file formats that will embed lots of information. Um, Gabri Waddell was on the show too, and he has a plugin called the RIN-M plugin. It'll keep people from copying? No, it's not that, but it's, this is a plugin you put in Pro Tools and while you're working on a song, uh-huh. you put in all the information about everybody's credits oh, oh, and then oh, it follows oh. the song Man. until it's completion and you can send it off to mastering along with the mixes. Oh, fantastic. And it will deliver all the, the rights and um, you know who played what and all that kind of stuff. Oh, fantastic. Credits. Now if we can just get something to block uh, duplication, you know. I don't know if that's ever coming or not. Yeah. I don't, I'm not so sure if that's coming, but I think that what might come is that there will be systems in place. There's something that I'm following now called dot blockchain music and um, systems where you have a file format that embeds all this metadata about the song. Yeah. And it will be 
people will be more incentivized to use the good file for yeah. everything than to try and use the copied file for okay. everything. Right. I mean, in the end, you know, if a kid wants to just make a tape of a song and go yeah. listen to it, there's nothing we're ever going to do about that. But I think that that, I think that that was happening plenty before the digital age came along. And now the digital age is here and, you know, we hadn't really figured out how to make that quite work yet, but Boy. that's another topic, right? Oh, it's, a, it's a mess. <laughs> the, it just it saddens me a little bit because all these younger musicians coming into the system, songwriters and artists, are just going to have such a difficult time. Yeah, I know. Well, so it was like so I much said, easier when, when I was coming through the system. It was so much easier. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I, I showed up right in the middle. Yeah, you did. I showed up right when the old uh, thing was was ending, yeah. and the new thing wasn't quite figured out yet. You know. Yeah. But I'll be happy to hand it off to the next generation yeah, of that's musicians. Good. I'd like to see a generation of music creators, uh, songwriters, musicians, producers, engineers, everybody who's involved in creating this stuff. And it becomes easy and minimal effort to sort of be included along for the ride of whatever your creations are. I'd like to see a world where you create something and maybe you're not famous with something you did, but the accumulation of all the little creations you did over time actually get tracked and, and you, you earn, you know, tiny bits of income from everywhere yeah. end up amounting to a real living for people. You yeah. Know, that's that'll be important that's stuff. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let me ask you another question. Um, you told us about JJ Kale um, and Cinderella and everlasting love and muscle shoals, man, we're moving so quickly. I'm running out of things. Let's talk about recording guitar, Mac. Um, what did it used to be like to play and record a guitar on a session? And what's it like now? How, is, how has it changed the way that you record a guitar? I haven't changed the thing. All right, well, tell us how you record yeah. a guitar. <clears throat> I just uh, plug in, and if I'm using a wild pedal, I use a wild pedal, I put a compressor in the front end, and it uh, gives it a little bit more body, you know. But as far as... Uh, any I haven't changed anything since the old days. How about from the engineering side of things, the recording side, to the extent that you feel comfortable answering those questions, um, how would you have put a mic on a guitar back yeah. in the day? How how do you do it now? Do I, you? I do didn't you, care what mics they put on there. I, what I would do is listen to the playback and figure out what I needed to do from from my end to make it sound the way I wanted it to. So I would modify the mic sound, you know. Because a lot of times the engineers would use what they wanted to use. I always trusted the engineers. You know, I never gave them any shit or anything. Gave them a yeah. any hard time. I just went did. You on. have any favorite engineers? No, I had. I liked them all. Because you know, by the time you get engineer the big in the big time in Nashville, you, you got to be a sister, brother, mother, uncle. You know, you got to be be able to psychologically lock into the musicians. You got to be a good guy, a nice person. You know. And that's that's a must, you know. Yeah, there were there were a couple of people hard to kind of deal with. It's been Tom Dowd was the hardest. I, yeah. Oh, you work with Tom? Tell Tom, us about working with Tom. I worked with Tom Dowd. I didn't know who he was, and I was coming back from Miami. I'd been down there at, at uh, Criteria cutting part of my album, and I stopped. Ooh, we got to talk about that. Stopped off at making it uh, at uh, what's what's the label at uh, Macon, Georgia? Yeah, in Macon. What's the label? Um, I don't know uh, which that, one. Uh, Allen Brothers wrong. Uh, I'm a terrible historian. Anyway, was was a studio. Anyway, he was engineer. It wasn't uh, fame. It wasn't, no, it that wasn't, was it wasn't fame. Yeah. It was making. And uh, 
So anyway, I heard this voice in there, and he was bossing me around, telling me what to do on the guitar, and and uh, being really hard on me. And I didn't know who he was until I was years later. I saw this documentary they'd done on Tom Dow. Have you seen that? Yeah. And I, I was riding in a van back from a gig, and, I, and they had put it on. And I went, God, it was Tom Dow. <laughs> he was giving me a hard time, you know. I think he cut Layla, didn't he cut? Didn't yep, he, he cut Layla, Derek and the Dominoes. Yeah, same yeah. studio. He spent a lot of time at Criteria Studios, and so your left elbow, Mac, is leaning on my console, which is a custom-built M- MCI that Jeep built for Criteria Studio C. Oh, right. So that's the same board that was in Studio C all through the 1970s at Criteria and recorded Hotel California for the Eagles. Oh, really? And the Bee Gees hits, yeah. Staying Alive, Saturday Night Fever. Um, Eric Clapton, 461 Ocean Boulevard was done on that as well. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. So I was there. Doing yeah, that so thing. maybe you were in Studio C. Do you remember which studio you would have been in yeah, at Criteria? They pushed us around all over the place because it was the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac and the other studios, and they would always preempt us and make at us— At the same time? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So this is in the 70s, right? Yeah. So there you were. Yeah, you, you may have worked on this very board. I could have, yeah. And uh, but I don't I don't remember. What was the session? What'd you go down to Criteria for? Uh, I cut my album uh, "Him to the Seeker." Oh, okay, all right. Which, which is uh, and uh, mixed it out in L.A. at uh, ABC's studio. Okay, cool. But uh, I, Randy Meisner came over to see us one time during the during those sessions, and uh, Glenn Fry was beating him up, <laughs> and he was. He was even bruised. He came over and said something to us, and we said, "Come on, stay with us for about a four, three or four days out in the, out in the woods." And uh, he did. And he said, "What should I do? I own a big ranch in Montana or somewhere, and I have a million dollars in the bank." Da, 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 da. He said, "What should I do?" I said, "Quit the band." He quit. And he had two or three hits on his own. Wait, wait that was Glenn Fry. That was uh, Randy Meisner. Oh, Randy Meisner. Sorry. Yeah, and he's he's since then been back several times, but. Okay, but, all right. Uh, wow. He was the high, take it to the limit, you know. Okay, Take right. it to the limit. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. But that is a funny story. And, and another story, you may not be able to put this on a podcast. It's one, going on. One, Tell it. It's going one, on the air. <laughs> one, one morning we walked in, and my daughter, Oshina, who you know, yeah. was a baby. And uh, she was in my arms, and uh, Fleetwood Mac had just found out that morning that they had gone I told you the story, didn't I? Yeah, tell it again. Tell yeah. it again. It's a great story. But they story. had gone platinum, and the album hadn't been finished. And so uh, I walked in, and Stevie Nicks is snorting Coke off the coffee table in the front front lounge, and she's got Coke on her nose dripping off. And she said, let me hold a baby. Oh, <laughs> so, man. So, trip. unfortunately, I did give her Oshina. She held her for a minute, and she said, I hope she grows up to be a rocker. And she, yeah. that might have been that might have helped influence right there. Yeah. <laughs> what a but she trip. said, "I hope she'll grow up to be a rocker." I remember she said it kind of the northern accent, rocker. That's great. What a trip. What a, what a wild yeah. story. But uh, I love hearing stories. So like we that. were treated like uh, no one knew who we were, and we were from Nashville. And they just kind of treated us. They came in and took our gear. We were right in the middle of a song. They come in and take a gear. Back then, the harmonizer was real popular. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the yeah. Aventide 910. Yeah, and they would come and get all that stuff and take it out of there for a while. And What would you use the harmonizer for? Do you know? I, I can't remember. I used it on guitar a few times, actually. <clears throat> um, let me ask you some questions about songwriting. Okay. So 
um, you've written a number of songs. You've had some great successes with songs. What advice would you have for songwriters? How does somebody begin to write songs? If somebody feels like they really want to write songs, but they don't feel confident about it yet, what advice do you have? <clears throat> the best advice about songwriting is you got to, when it's in seed form, it's, it's, it can be real innocent and meaningless almost, you know. Put it down, let it, let it kind of germinate, you know, and it'll grow into something. You, what I do is usually I let songs grow into something, a metamorphosis, you know, and that works every time. Uh, even if I come up with a, a lame idea, I, I put it down. Yeah. And it'll turn into something beautiful, like, uh, what, what do you call it, kaleidoscope. You yeah. Know? Turns into something incredible out of a seed form. So I, I, that's what I, I always go by that. I love that. It's yeah. what a great quote. Yeah. Even if it's a lame idea, put it down. Put it down. Because I, I agree with you. I've heard stuff, or I've had an idea, and I've recorded the sketch. I try to always just like capture sketches on my iPhone or whatever. Yeah. And um, my brain in that moment is telling me, that's a stupid idea. Yeah. That is a, what a dumb lyric. What a dumb, you don't sound very good singing. Oh, yeah. And then I might come back and listen, and I might agree. But sometimes I listen, I'm like, wait a minute, that's pretty cool. You hear it out of context. Yeah. And sometimes I listen to other people's music, and I try and imagine if I was singing that, and I realize that a lot of great writers um, have the ability to shape something that's really simple and something that's really almost like removed, uh, like it's universal. Yeah, oh, yeah. But if I tried to do that, I, I might not be willing to to own that as an idea of my own. And I think that's a hurdle for me, you know, it's yeah. just like accepting that it's like, just go for it. Accept you know? that it's going to grow into something you don't, you don't know yet. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I know a friend of mine came in uh, on a Sunday morning and uh, he came into my house and said, I just heard the DJ on WVOL, which is the black station, say, uh, you put a, put, a, put a hole in my soul. This said, this song will put a hole in your soul. He said, I said, you get 25%. He said, what do you mean? I'll give you 25%. I'm going to write it. And by the end of the day, I'd written, she shot a hole in my soul. And it, my first thought of uh, hole in my soul. But I just changed it around. She shot a hole in my soul. And, and it was an R&B hit. All right, that's great. That was with um, Clifford Curry. Yeah, Clifford Curry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I remember hearing that one on YouTube too. I think I put that in the YouTube links yeah. as well. Well, that's cool. Um, all right, now how about? Do you have a process for? You know, you put the germ of an idea down, a seed down. Do you have a, a process to come back and revisit it, and you know, pour a little water on oh, it, and yeah. let it grow a little bit? I do it all the time. I may have fifteen ideas going at the same time. Like, I may have fifteen books in the room. That I'm reading it may take all year to read them all, and I do the same thing with songwriting. Just here, or there, Just go back and review it. Yeah, see what happens. So, you know, also something I do. I don't know if a lot of people do this, but I'll have a a, a bridge in a song that's not working. I'll go back and review all the songs that I've got that aren't finished that have bridges that are cool, and I'll rob the. I'll take them out of my own material. You know, plausuras. Okay, you so that? you take, so you've got your. I'll say it again. So you're you're stealing bridges from old songs. Yeah, that, that I haven't finished. Okay, all right. Oh, yeah. I see. They yeah. weren't working. Something wasn't working. Yeah. So would, well, since it's not working, I'm taking that bridge. I, I do that all the time. Take it back. Yeah, 
Do you find it's a lot easier to make the music work than it is to make the lyrics and the melody work? It's both. Yeah. It, it can, it depends, you know. I think for me, the lyrics take longer to distill. Yeah. 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 Well, it's inspiring. And um, I guess one last question about writing. Have you in your life seen yourself write prolifically and then sometimes seeing the flame go d die down a little bit on your writing? And how do you handle that? How do you, how do you know that you're writing enough and that you've got enough books I've never half had, written? I've never had writer's block. Never had writer's never block. Had All right. Never had it. Just like when I was writing my autobiography, I had to like make myself stop, stop, you know, because there's so much stuff coming all the time. You yeah. Know? And I've never had that problem. So when people talk about, I've heard guys say, I got to go get my heart broken because I need to write a song. I actually saw people do that. They would go fall in love with some girl that they knew they couldn't keep just so they'd experience. I saw Chris Christopherson do this. Really? Because I, I lived in a duplex with him before he became famous. And uh, he kind of would fall in love with, he may not put this on the thing. He would kind of the wrong right. Well, we're, we're still, live now, so maybe yeah. don't tell it if you he don't still, want it to go He off, was but. still married, you know. But you know, I've seen people fall in love with people, women or guys that they couldn't keep. Right, you know, right. Knowing it was going to be some residual damage, but maybe a hit song. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, hey, I think it's time for us to take a break, and then we'll come back in for the jam session. Uh, rock stars, you can find links to what we're talking about, the YouTube clips, listen to the music. Just click through on the show notes, whether you're on your mobile device or listening on your laptop. And we'll see you in just a moment for the jam session. Cheers. Roswell Pro Audio brings you microphone design that is out of this world. Endorsed by a growing list of artists and producers like Phil Collin of Def Leppard, Ross Hogarth, who's recorded Van Halen, Ziggy Marley, and the Doobie Brothers, and Super Dupes, working with Drake, Mary J. Blige, and Eminem. These are all rock stars that have discovered just how great Roswell microphones sound. Check out the Mini K47, which uses a capsule modeled on the one in the vintage U47 at a street price of only $299. Or the beautiful Delphos condenser microphone with a capsule tuned like the vintage U67 with great clarity and far lower noise at a street price of only $899. In fact, you are hearing my voice right now on the beautiful Delphos microphone. These mics are carefully crafted by hand and immediately feel good even before you plug them in and hear how great they sound. These are well-built microphones that will last you and your studio a lifetime of great recording. Check out more audio examples of these awesome mics at roswellproaudio.com. Okay. Hey, rock stars. We're back now for the jam session. My guest today is Mac Gaden, and uh, we're going to jump right in. Mac, are you ready to jam? I'm ready to do it. Let's get down. All right, Groovy man. Let's get down. Hey, you know, one of the things I didn't ask you before we took the break that I did want to ask you is what, what do you see today in new music that really inspires you? Where are you seeing the innovation in music that turns you on? There's one thing I see that I wish I didn't see. And I'll say, whoa, W-H-O-A is a lyric that everybody uses when they run out of things to say. <laughs> um, is that, are you talking about it? like these big choruses? Oh, yeah. yeah, the the stomp, the, you know, okay. like the stomp acoustic yeah. Yeah. choruses that we hear now on on the radio, wherever it's like whoa, whoa, yeah. What whoa. Was yeah, my wife and I, when we hear a song on the radio that does that, we just laugh. <laughs> they ran out of the lyric. They ran out yeah. of the lyric. 
I think I need to write one of those choruses to get it off my chest too. Yeah. But I agree with you. I heard, I've heard too many of it. And then maybe you can comment on this, but I feel like a sure sign that something might be, I don't know if it's forgettable later, or maybe if it's a hit, I don't know, is when you start hearing it get used as like a default jingle in all the commercials. Oh yeah. You know, like certain styles and like the woe chorus or like the, the ukulele, Yeah, you know, like, uh, little chimey bells and oh, ukulele yeah. oh, is yeah. like that's like the default jingle for you know by the time it gets to commercials boy it's been running the ground yeah yeah all right well so um when you started out in recording mac what was one of the things that was holding you back uh when i first started yeah, i'm trying to think what was, no what was holding me back i didn't have a lot of technique as a guitar player i was self-taught i never took a lesson and uh, it held me back a little bit because I was just not that quick as a, as a player. Yeah. But so I started trying to speed up. And one day I was, I was, uh, my bro- I was 13 years old. And one day my brother was booking this band called the Jets here in town, a black band. And I went to hear their sound check and I picked those, picked the guitar player's guitar up when he was on the break. I said, can I play it? And he said, yeah. And I started trying to play jazz. He walks over to me, and here's what he's, this is a true story. He says, quit trying to play like a white boy and play from your heart. Interesting. And it really messed with my head. Yeah. For years, for several years, until I picked up the slide guitar, and then I thought, oh, I've got some breathing room now. And then I had another musician from India say, it's the silence between the notes is where God, God lives. Ah, uh, that's good advice. Yeah. So then I started slowing down, you know, and then just— Taking things a little bit at a time, but it was it was a little a struggle for me there in the beginning. Well, I think the first thing we do is we learn how to make some sounds. Yeah, and then later we learn how to stop making some sounds. Yeah, that becomes a powerful thing. It's now, a, how about uh, well? So, a next question was going to be share some of the best advice you received. Obviously, both of those were really good bits of advice. Yeah. Do you have anything else you'd like to share? Any other? Um, inspirations for you or mentors that gave you great advice? I would just say uh, pay attention to everyone when you're in the studio, every musician, producer, artist, and engineer, because they always have something to say and respect their space. And But never use the studio as a confrontational... You never use it as a place for a confrontation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, had you ever seen any... Well, you described kind of a blow-up. Yeah. On the Simon and Garfunkel session, but yeah. had you seen people kind of really lose it in the studio? Oh, yeah. Back in the old days, I say old days when we were cutting, you know, a whole lot of sessions and takes, a whole lot of takes. I was on a session one time, and this guy came into the session from another session. He said, I was on a, a Every Brothers session, and they're on the 93rd take, and people were screaming and throwing stuff at each other. <laughs> And I, but I, I remember that clearly. So yeah. would that have been the Everly Brothers singing for the 93rd time, or would that have been the band playing it again for Probably the 93rd both. time? Probably both. Combination <laughs> of both. Wow. That's pretty amazing. I've done, uh, well, so a couple of thoughts. One is we live in an age with Pro Tools and these digital things where people just do a million takes and keep everything and comp it together. I've done vocal sessions where I've had to comp <laughs> – 
from 150 vocal takes before, and I don't ever want to do it again. And oh I, my god, the part of me that is a problem solver wanted, yeah. you know, figured out a way to do it. Yeah, but I don't know that it created something that was a really good idea in the end. Yeah, um, but it's always remarkable for me to hear stories of the era of recording that you started out in, how that creative burden, that creative um, challenge of overdoing it has yeah. always been there. Oh, yeah. And sometimes people just did 93 takes yeah. to try and get something right. They just couldn't keep all 93 takes. Yeah. That's why I quit engineering, because uh, I was a perfectionist. And I noticed that, you know, songs were sounding sterile and too perfect. So now, a lot of times I put mistakes in or leave them in on purpose, you know or things that are semi-mistakes, you know. Yeah. That uh, maybe slide by the listener, but I know they're there, you know. It was a quote I remember hearing, maybe it was from Diz Dizzy Gillespie or somebody like that, who said, that, like, if it ain't got your mistakes, it ain't, it ain't none of you. <laughs> yeah, um, that's cool. Which I like, you know, yeah. and, and I've gone through versions of music with mistakes and music where things have tried to be overly perfect. Yeah. And it seems like neither direction all the way is the right place. In the it seems middle. like it's somewhere in the middle, right? That's right. That's right. Um, yeah. Moderation, even in even moderation and moderation, right? <laughs> oh yeah, it's amazing. Um, it is. Well, so you know that, and for me, that's something that I like to approach sessions with now too. I I would rather record, you know, five songs in a week, you know, one song every day, start to finish, than spend all five days recording one song. Yeah, that's right. You know, I'd rather record 10 songs in a weekend and then just keep the good ones and let the other ones go. Yeah. I feel like that's a good correlation to songwriting too, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, I mean, it is. Have you ever written great songs when you decided that each song that you wrote had to be perfect? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think everybody's done that. Well, talk a little bit about um, co-writing in Nashville. Has that been part of your process? Have you gone through the whole co-writing thing? I'm not much of a co-writer uh, in the sense that I've written a lot of songs where I did all the work and, and uh, shared it with people, and then they got as much money, right. same amount of royalties as I did. Right, without and, doing so much. And without doing anything. Sometimes. Well, that might be because when they walked in and said the title, you gave them 25% yeah. right off the bat. <laughs> yeah, but that one, that one was a friend, you know, and, yeah. and it was understood. But I have written songs where I did most of the work and worked hard on it and, and uh, didn't share in the, the same amount of royalties that I should have, I guess. And everybody has done that. I mean, I've heard of songs that people wrote, got credit for where they weren't, didn't do anything. They were just in the room, you know? Yeah. And uh, so there's something strange about that a little bit, karmically, you know? How yeah. about um, sharing a recording tip, hack, or secret sauce, something that the rock stars, which is how I refer to our listeners, could use on their next session this afternoon or today? I don't know what time you're listening, so I shouldn't say this afternoon. <laughs> Just any kind of studio tip or recording production tip that, that is kind of fun that you might want to tell people about. Yeah, I would just, the main thing I've got written written in my notes is pay attention. Yeah, because a lot of times we get caught in our own thoughts and we're not paying attention to what's going on around us and it could be something incredible, you know. And, uh, you know, when I was living in the duplex with Chris Christopherson, he was writing me and Bobby McGee in the attic upstairs at night. Oh yeah, and uh, and I didn't pay any attention. I was not paying attention, you know. And the next thing, a few weeks later, it was a hit. 
Wow. Yeah. So um, uh, those kinds of things will happen. And so uh, pay attention because a lot of greatness, uh, beautiful, creative things happen uh, around you all the time. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that, your daily routine back then. Yeah. You guys were roommates. How old were you? Uh, my family was living on one side and his on the other. I was 26, 20, 20. I was just out. We were in the Army together. Chris okay. and I were. So now were you married with yeah, Oshina at this point? Or I had two like? kids. No, okay. Oshina's brother and sister, older sister. Okay, all right, all right. And um, and Chris is your roommate, or he's, you know, he's other, a, other half of a duplex. Right, other half of a duplex. And uh -huh. you guys are writing songs each day and then going down to a publishing house to go turn them in and, and he, something he, like that. And I, I wrote Everlasting Love while we were living there, and he wrote me, me, uh, me and Bobby McGee and Sunday Morning Coming Down and, and maybe Help Me Make It Through the Nights. All right, well, let me ask you this. How did you guys keep each other inspired? What was the well, what was could, the routine that that fueled each other's writing and made made you guys all into great? Well, he didn't understand what I was doing because I was doing R and B, and he, I didn't understand what he was doing because he could only play two chords. And <laughs> 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 the, the third chord, he would go, and he goes, "Supposed to go." So I didn't, I, I wasn't swapping notes with him or anything like that. I thought. He really wants to be a writer, and I wonder how long it's going to take for him to get past his singing. Yeah, I was being negative. Yeah, mm -hmm. I wasn't paying attention. You weren't paying attention. Yeah. I was paying attention to me and my thing, but I wasn't paying attention to him. And he could have, you know, shared the song with me, or we could have co-written it. Who knows? You know, right? Yeah. Who knows what could have happened? And then another thing happened to me one time. This guy named Don Schlitz came to town, and I was playing a club. He was opening up for me because I was the headliner, and he was just playing with he and his guitar. Well, backstage, he was being real smart-ass and real cynical and real uh, about everybody but me. He was being real nice to me, but he's being, you know, r really not much of a nice guy to other people. And I thought, oh, he's got a problem, you know. Anyway, so he started writing for this company that I was already writing for, and he t he walked up to me one day and said, I'm not going to pay my dues like you did. I want it now. And I went, yeah, sure, uh-huh, yeah. And so I, one day he was doing a session downstairs in the studio, and they'd got broke, taken a break for lunch. And No, they'd left the studio for the day. And I was going to take over with my band and do a demo. Well, we're laying on the console, because I was kind of snobbing him at that point because I was afraid of his attitude, laying on the console with the li lyrics to The Gambler. Really? Yeah. Which turned out to be the biggest hit country song of all time. <laughs> <laughs> and he I wrote that one in a hurry. I he didn't bother paying his dues. He just went right for it. That's right. I wasn't paying attention. You know, I could have maybe been his publisher or helped him do it or yeah. something. I wasn't paying attention. So it's all, I'm, what I'm saying is there's good things happening all the time. Just I had, I had a situation that that reminds me of happened to me. There was an uh, artist named Josh Rouse here in Nashville. And, yeah. Um, his Chris Moon, I believe, was his his manager at the time, and it was early on. And I was a young engineer, and they came up and asked me about recording or mixing or something, and I appreciated it. But at the same time, I think internally, I thought like, I, who are these guys? You know, I don't, yeah. I don't know them. I don't know who this guy is or whatever. Because yeah. I don't think Josh, if you're listening to this, I don't think we knew each other yet then. And um, and I remember just thinking, having that feeling like. Well, I don't know what that is, so I'm not paying attention to it, just like yeah, you said. Yeah. And then, sure enough, shortly after that, 
they went off and did something else with somebody else and I and I kind of missed an opportunity to work with them. And then he turned out to be this fantastic songwriter and completely yeah. set a whole new genre of music and took off and it was just great. <laughs> it was so funny. It's like, you know, you just don't know. But at the same time, you can't do everything. You got to yeah, choose some something yeah, and that's, that's where your attention is. You know? That's true, but it's, uh, uh, it's a lot of good things happening all the time. You know? Yeah. All right, well, so... um. How about something that's sort of a favorite hardware tool in the studio? And now, before you answer, sometimes people think that means a recording gear. In your case, it could be anything, you know, whether it's a guitar or amp or recording mic. or Is there anything physical that you always like to have with you on sessions? Uh, well, I, Maybe a uh, notebook. <laughs> I, I use um, AKG C12. Yeah. And a Sure SM7 on my voice and voices I've been producing. Yeah, those yeah. are both great mics. Yeah, those are both great. Uh, we use the SM7 quite a lot. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, off the top of your head, what's how do they sound different to you? What what are their things about the way they sound that you like? Well, the uh, mid range, I think, is it, it uh, is it the Sure? Yeah, the yeah. Sure SM7 is yeah. the dynamic. Yeah. yeah. It's the uh, black mic, the, yeah. the, the Michael used, Jackson mic. I've used that on me too a lot. So I just it's just something I, I, I can't define. I can never tell you which whether mids, highs, lows, or whatever. Yeah, that's all right. You don't have yeah. to we don't have to like over technify yeah. it. Yeah. Um you know, one of the things I really like about the SM seven is that it almost sounds compressed already. Yeah. It yeah. kind of takes the voice and just so sticks you don't it right have to up do there. It. You don't so, have to do as much yeah. to it. Yeah, there's a girl I'm producing right now, it's just beautiful on that mic. And uh, I just love it. And there's a, there's another note down here, something about uh, I use sound toys. Oh yeah, yeah sound toys. They make yeah. great plugins. Oh yeah, that's that's the all Echo we... Boy and um, the Crystallizer yeah. and all these yeah. uh, the um, Decapitator. Yeah. Great stuff. Yeah, I'm trying to stay away from using too many plugins, but you know, because you can get it can get away with you quick. You know, what digital um, workstation do you use to record? trying to think is it pro tools or something oh it's uh, uh what is he using now or or let's say some of them's pro tools he's, logic, pro, he's using pro tools he's using pro tools uh yeah. he uses logic for some other things okay so, right yeah. and do you have your own studio space no i don't you don't who do you like to work with now i've been working with my esser you know esser i don't no no yeah not he's got a studio owned over on trinity lane okay cool yeah trinity is close to here yeah but i'm getting ready to like uh move around because I have to get a different perspective. Yeah. Yeah. What is your right here off off the mic? <laughs> well, I'll tell you after the after the thing. But uh, yeah. it's very it's very affordable. Okay. Very affordable. Okay. Um, well, so all right. So now, how about uh, let's see. You talked about hardware tool. You talked about software. Um, and I know you, we didn't want to get into the studio business, but do you have any just overall business advice for anybody? You know, as they embark on their their music and recording career just any tips for like how to be smart in business you're talking about people who own studios or no, no, just you talk speak just, from yeah, your own perspective in general yeah well did, what would you what would you if you had a son who was starting out in music now what advice would you give him for um the business side of it the business side of it is is really hard for me to say because what's happening right now is uh I can't give any advice on that. <laughs> you can't, just can't? I can't. All right. Because I got two kids, and I told them not to pursue music. All right. Fair yeah, enough. Fair enough. 
if if they can't figure out a way to make money, they're gonna have to play live and be able to go on the road and play live all the time. Yeah, and that that's gonna have to be their strength. What do you yeah. think were some of the strengths that you had through your music career? What are some of the business decisions that turned out to work well for you? Well, what worked for me was uh, I trusted my intuition and didn't take no for an answer. I like that. Yeah. I, not taking no for an answer is something yeah. it's something that I've used to describe my own approach to yes, it, too. Yes, true. I yeah. can't speak to exactly how much success it's brought my way, but um, it's brought the success of continuing to do it yeah. when maybe I might have wisely given up long ago. Who knows? Oh, yeah. you know? <laughs> I, le- I learned determination when I was an athlete, and I applied that to my music a little bit, the, the determination, because I was not a really big guy or anything like that, but I had a tremendous amount of determination, yeah. and it made me— Pretty good athlete at one time. Well, you were still on the team after they kept you on the bench for five <laughs> yeah. games, so right. you were determined to be in the on the team, right? That's right. Yeah. All right. How about uh, anything, an organizational resource, something you like to use online, or just some method that you like to use? Like, how do you keep all your stuff organized? You must have notebooks and songs you have to keep organized. You must have records and old master tapes you have to keep I just track keep, of. Yeah, I keep everything on hard drive and. Disc and flash drive, everything. Double, double up on things. Just double up as yeah, much as you yeah, can. Yeah, because you can lose that stuff, and it's just. Have you, know, you ever felt like it was hard to really understand and keep up with the technology? Nope. No. No, I'm fine no with it. All right. Just, it's just a clutter of, of I've got so many hard drives. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just, it's just ridiculous. But just, just. Duplicates. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably a good Do choice you, for that. I bet you have a lot too. I try to too, but I mean, I, you know, I think I deal with the same problem and I think everybody does. The more you do this, the more stuff you've got. And then yeah. you're like, Do you keep and, up? And the technology changes. By the time you just begin to have a system, yeah. the technology oh, changes. Yeah, and now you got like to come up with a new system. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, but I think that, like you say, the best strategy is just over back it up, back it up too much. Oh, yeah. Too better, many places. It's better to do that than It's not. frustrating to have six hard drives and try and remember which one was the right one yeah. when you go back for a session. Yeah. But that's a whole lot better than having no hard drives when you that's go back right. for a Just session. A little bit more time. It's all, yeah. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Um, let's say uh, you were going to start over again with your recording, or let's say you just wanted to have a simple setup to record. Um, what would you probably choose today? for something simple to record with? First of all, I wouldn't go to tape. <laughs> right, all right, fair enough. <laughs> I've, already, I've already sold myself out to uh, digital. Yeah. I don't know. I've, I cut a, uh, the album on Oshina, and the three or four things that we did on uh, on analog just didn't stand up. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and a couple of other albums I've cut on, and they just didn't stand up to, to digital. I don't know. I think now that everybody's into digital uh, – your your mind is trained for that high end, you know. Yeah. And if you're not getting it, it's, it's like you feel you feel a loss or something. Right. Right. But what would I do right now? So you'd you'd get a digital setup. You'd get a Pro Tools or something like oh, that. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And have you uh have you bought yourself computers, laptop or or desktop computers to run Pro Tools yourself? Oh yeah, I have. But I sold. I got rid of everything. You got rid. I of don't them. do any engineering at all. At all. I just. I trust engineers. Yeah. All right. Well, then that's that's fair advice. It's just yeah. like you know, if you're not if you're not way into the recording, then yeah. just find somebody to do it for you. The first, uh, I'll, I'll get personal here. 
I got uh, prostate cancer a few years ago. Oh, I'm sorry. In, to hear that. in the first, and I'm I'm fine. It's five years ago, and uh, <clears throat> the first thing the doctor said to me he says, "You know who has the highest rate of prostate cancer?" I said, "Who?" He said, "Truck, truck drivers." And I said, "What?" He said, "What do you do?" I said, "I'm an engineer right now." He says, "Stop it." Either do that or walk around every now and then. Yeah. Get up every every thirty forty minutes and walk around. It's too much He's, sitting in yeah, a chair, too right? Much, and you've probably had some problems with that fast. Um, I definitely don't feel comfortable if I'm sitting down for too long. Yeah. I like to move around. Yeah, I've thought about reconfiguring my studio so that I could just be standing while I work all the time. And so uh, I tried doing it. It made me nervous just having to get up all the time. So I thought, just write more songs and, and hire an engineer. They're great engineers and people that are very talented doing that and know more than you do. So to, to, you know, yeah. use, use what's there, you know. Well, I feel, and I've said this before, I feel a little bit like I got – um, screwed yeah. getting into music. So I know that engineering for a long time has been sitting in a chair and desks yeah. and stuff in studios. But <clears> when <throat> I started out in recording and when I saw the inside of a studio, yeah. it was a place with a lot of equipment and a lot yeah. of knobs. Yeah. And there was a lot of reason to move around and get yeah. up, maybe get up out of your chair and walk over and, and turn a knob, yeah. get up, play a guitar, play an instrument, get back down, go yeah. over to the tape machine. And during my time in recording, it's become computers, so much so that you literally sit in one place with your hands sort of rigid at your sides, and you're just clicking on a keyboard and moving a mouse around, and there's almost no movement left. Yeah. And I don't like that. You know? yeah. I don't think that's a great way to spend a lot of time. So, yeah. Rockstars, I encourage you to get up out of your chair, move around. Right, move around. I, I will even say this. I actually think, I, in a way, I, we, I benefit by having a control room that's not perfectly balanced in one sweet spot for mixing. Yeah. So if I'm mixing music, I have to get up out of the chair and walk around to different spots and go listen to bass in the different yeah. part of the room yeah. and move around. Right. If I'm recording a band, you know, I get up and move around to different parts. I think that's a benefit. Oh, yeah. And know? also as a producer, I feel it's almost invaluable to bounce off of an engineer because it's something extremely special about that to me. It's like, Almost like more important than anything is for bouncing off the engine. They're always going to tell you the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you and know. Not always, but usually. Yeah. I, I think that there are things that you can do all by yourself where you can really get focused on yeah. an idea. Yeah. But when it comes to the end of the day and I look back at what it means to me to record music, yeah. I've accepted or I realized that the, the, Favorite thing for me is to spend all day in the studio making records with a group of friends. Yeah, it's hard to beat that for oh, for fan, something to do with your life. You it's know? fantastic. You know, we're we're really, really lucky. Yeah. yeah. Well, so Mac, uh, last question here is hypothetical. We're going to take the way back studio machine. Go back to uh, I don't know, maybe nineteen sixties Nashville, where the only tall building was the L and C building, which is now buried in a sea of skyscrapers. Yeah. When you look at the skyline. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, like Nashville skyline doesn't uh, look the same anymore. Yeah. But um, if you could go back and find young Mac and give yourself one bit of advice and say, Mac, I've come back to tell you this is the single most important thing you need to know to be a rock star of the studio yourself one day, what advice would you give yourself? Don't be afraid to stand in the spotlight. Okay, good. Yeah. Tell us more about that. Because I just never did. I always avoided stardom. Yeah. 
Like the plague. Yeah, that was, yeah. Um, gosh, who else said that on the podcast? Somebody said, um, was talking about remembering to get in the photo. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, they weren't in the photos that showed the famous records they had been on. Yeah, I had all these chances. The labels signed three or four major label deals, just kind of blew it off. Didn't play the game, you know? I mean, the game was, you know, kind of a little bit do the drugs that they want you to do, do the the girl, the women they want you to do, whatever whatever you had to do on that end. But I, I didn't do that. And, but I, I'm, I'm glad I didn't, but I could have approached it differently. I could have been a little bit more accommodating to the labels always ask me to do things that that uh, I wanted to be around my kids, you know? Yeah. And then rather than stay on the road and tour for the rest of my life, Charlie Daniels played at that time was 320 dates a year. Charlie Daniels played 320 dates a year, and uh, to me that's not something I wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah, we were kind of coming through the system at the same time. Well, I can understand that. I mean, I made a big shift in my life where I kind of let go of the major label world and, yeah. and traveling to make records and decided to come home to, to family. Yeah. And I've always said, I'll say it again, but my daughter's the best record I ever made. <laughs> yeah. So oh, yeah. I can understand. So, Mackie, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us. Um, let our listeners know how they can find you. How can they learn okay. more about you? Do you have a website you want them to go to? Okay, www.mattgaden.com. Facebook is Matt Gaden. Or, wait a minute, Facebook is, can't read it. It's probably like it's Facebook slash Gaden Gaden. at united.net. Okay, all right. We'll put uh, we'll put that in the uh, show yeah. notes if we can, too. Yeah. Um, Mac, thanks so much for joining us. It's just an honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Lidge. I haven't seen you in so long. You look like. Guru. <laughs> no, I changed my look a little look bit. Look like a guru from the Far East. Uh, just I'm, I'm just in. trying to look, make you look younger uh, You look by looking older. I love your look. It makes me feel like I'm in California. All right, Guru, man. Well, thanks so much, Mac. <laughs> Thank I look forward to seeing you more around the studio. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RS Rockstars to 33444. Again, that's RS Rockstars to 33444. And I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.